Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for September 23, 2022. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today is Reese Jones, Professor of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. His latest book, Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States, is published by Counterpoint Press and co-editor of the Rutledge Geopolitics book series with Klaus Dodds. He is best known for his work on border walls, the militarization of borders, and the rise in migrant deaths. His earlier books include Violent Borders, Refugees, and the Right to Move, Open Borders, In Defense of Free Movement, and Placing the Border in Everyday Life. Among his numerous awards is a Guggenheim Fellowship. In Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States, he traces the history of the Border Patrol from its creation, quietly tucked into the Labor Appropriation Act of 1924. He writes, quote, Its sole mission was to enforce the new eugenics-derived rules about who could enter the United States, end quote. For most of its existence, it was a small, underfunded agency, a mere 1,500 agents in the 1970s, until the 21st century, when it has become a, quote, modern, sophisticated, paramilitary force of over 19,000 agents that asserts the legal right to sweep people off the streets of an American city without a warrant or even probable cause that a crime was committed, end quote citizens and non-citizens alike. As Justice Thurgood Marshall noted, nobody is protected. We spoke with Reese Jones on September 20th, 2022. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Reese Jones. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Joy. Thanks for having me on. Reese, to quote your introduction, Nobody is Protected, tells the story of how the Border Patrol grew from a small and underfunded frontier agency established in 1924 into a modern, sophisticated paramilitary force of 19,000 agents that claims the legal right to sweep people off the streets of an American city without a warrant or even probable cause that a crime was committed. And while other police are bound by the Fourth Amendment, which protects citizens and non-citizens alike from unreasonable searches and seizures, the Border Patrol's 1925 congressional authorizations allowed agents to stop vehicles without a warrant for immigration inspections within the border zone. Now, that's ending the quote from your book. Reese, you document that after 9-11, the agency has grown in the number of agents as well well as military technology operating anywhere in the United States. But before we get into that, you remind us that before the latter part of the 19th century, the U.S. was much less invested in protecting our borders and more interested in expanding them. So please tell our listeners about the origin stories of the Border Patrol, beginning as you do in your book with Jefferson Davis Milton. Joy, I think there are a number of things when I talk about the Border Patrol that surprise people. And one of them is certainly that the United States didn't have a Border Patrol until 1924. 
So for the first 150 years, roughly after the Declaration of Independence, there was no force whose job was to patrol the external boundaries of the country and stop people from crossing in. And the reason for that is that the U.S. didn't have many immigration restrictions for most of those early years. There were no federal immigration laws until the 1870s. Prior to that, there were some state-level restrictions, but those were ruled unconstitutional twice in 1849 in the passenger cases and then again in the 1870s. So it wasn't until there was large-scale Chinese immigration after the gold rush to the Western states that the U.S. put in place restrictions on immigration. And they did so through 1875, the Page Act, and then 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act. In the years between 1882 and then 1924, Another series of smaller immigration restrictions were put in place, but it wasn't until 1924 that the U.S. had a large-scale national immigration restriction at its borders. And the one that was put in place in 1924 is a shocking law looking at it from our contemporary era. It was written based on eugenics ideas of the superiority of white northern Europeans, and the explicit goal was to restrict the immigration of people to to the United States from essentially everywhere else. People from Asia were completely banned and there were really small quotas put on people coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. And so the Border Patrol was created two days after that law went into effect. So they were founded essentially as a, a racial police force. And you mentioned Jefferson Davis Milton. Whenever you're working on a book or a project like this, you look for that telling story that kind of illustrates that larger idea. And with the Border Patrol, it's in the form of their very first agent. The the very first person hired to patrol the borders of the United States was named after the president of the Confederacy. Jefferson Davis. And Jefferson Davis Milton's father had been the Confederate governor of Florida. He was born during the Civil War, and his father decided to name him after the president of the Confederacy. And so that kind of legacy of racism, of the exclusions that the Confederacy was fighting for, I think it's telling that the first person that the Border Patrol hired was named that and had that sort of legacy. And we see that throughout the existence of the Border Patrol of a racial purpose to the policing that they do. It was explicit in the 1920s because they were enforcing a racially exclusionary law, but it's continued through the present day. And in the book, I talk about the, the role of racial profiling in the policing that the Border Patrol does. So Jefferson Davis Milton, his father commits suicide right around the time of Lee's surrender at Appomattox in 1865. He goes to join the Texas Rangers in 1878. Please spend a little time talking about the Texas Rangers because in many ways it seems their ethos and methods kind of imbued the current ethos of the Border Patrol. Absolutely. Although the U.S. did not have a Border Patrol until 1924, there were people patrolling at the frontiers of the country. And so those were in Texas, which accounts for almost half of the boundary between the United States and Mexico. Those were predominantly Texas Rangers. Today, we often have a kind of romanticized view of the Texas Rangers, right? The Dallas baseball team is named after them. Their television shows like the, the Lone Ranger, for example, kind of romanticize what they were doing. 
But in reality, the Texas Rangers were a violent and largely unregulated force that had a long history of racially motivated violence in the frontier zones of Texas, targeting both people of Mexican origin after Texas seceded from Mexico, and then also Native American groups, particularly the Comanche, for example, who the Rangers battled for many years on the western edges of Texas. And so when the Border Patrol was established, that's who they looked to to recruit into the new border force. So the early agents tended to be people who were engaged in this frontier law enforcement. So Jeff Milton is the quintessential example of that. He was a Texas Ranger for a period of time. He was also a sheriff in Tombstone, Arizona, just a couple of years after the famous shootout there. And he also later worked as a customs official and worked as what they called a mounted Chinese inspector, whose job was to ride around border towns and look for people of Chinese origin after the Chinese Exclusion Act and to remove them from the United States if they didn't have the correct papers, a kind of an, an early precursor to the racialized policing that the Border Patrol does. Yes, you referred to what was going on from Texas through Arizona as ethnic cleansing of both the indigenous people and formerly Mexican citizens. But we also need to remember that there was a lot of violence coming across the border. I mean, there was the Mexican Revolution that Pancho Villa was involved in, and there was also banditry. So people were kind of paranoid, I suppose, in Texas. Tell us about a particular incident on Christmas of 1917 at the Bright Ranch. During this period of time, there was a lot of violence in Mexico as that revolution was happening. And a number of refugees crossed the border to find safety in the United States. But there were also a number of raids that were happening during this period of time as well. And one of those was a raid that happened on that Christmas morning at the Bright Ranch where normally would have been teeming with farmhands working on the ranch. But because it was Christmas morning, many had gone to their homes and it was largely empty. And so this group came across and were looking to steal supplies and horses to take back to participate in the, the revolution. But they ended up killing some people in the process. And it angered the Texas Rangers and, the, and many other people in the border area. And so it precipitated kind of a revenge attack a couple of months later in the town of Porvenir which was a town made up of refugees, of people who had fled the violence in Mexico and were residing on the, the U.S. side and had nothing to do with the raid at the Bright Ranch. It just so happened that the raiders had crossed near this town. Um, but the Texas Rangers decided to take out their revenge there. And so they went back there late at night, rounded up the men of the town and took them out into the surrounding areas and shot them and killed them. And in the end, there were 15 people taken out and killed by the Texas Rangers at that time. At first, they denied that it happened, but then a later investigation demonstrated that it did. And so a larger investigation after that looked into the actions of the Texas Rangers and just found widespread violence and essentially taking the law into their own hands, not detaining people, but rather just killing people in the borderlands. 
possibly up to 5,000 killings that report found in the previous decade for the Texas Rangers. And so you would think that when the federal government was forming a new federal police force that they would look elsewhere for their early recruits. But the opposite turned out to be the case. They hired many of these Texas Rangers into the Border Patrol to become the first agents, including Chuck Milton, who we've talked about. So from 1917, we go to, as you already mentioned, 1924, the National Origins Quotas Immigration Act. Tell us about that, please. This act is the culmination of these fears about racial identity in the United States. It starts with the Chinese Exclusion Acts in the 1880s and kind of as each new non-white immigrant group starts to arrive in the United States, new laws are passed to prevent those migrations. During Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, he talked about what he called race suicide, which to him was the notion that the white residents of the United States tended to have fewer babies than the immigrant families. And if they allowed too many immigrants to come to the country, it would be the suicide of the race. During this period, eugenics thinking, which made the case that white Northern Europeans were racially superior to other peoples, was a dominant way of thought in the United States. And when they were forming this law in 1924, the committee in the House had a full-time eugenics agent whose job was to bring eugenics research to them so they could use that in the crafting of the law. The law built on a 1921 law, which was an emergency quota that was put in place to prevent the arrival of a lot of people from Europe after World War One, because particularly there were a lot of people coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. Also, there were a lot of Jews migrating to the United States, and that was perceived at the time as, as a threat, and the effort was to prevent those migrations. And so that 1924 law puts those things in place. The headlines of the newspapers at this time are indicative of this sort of thinking. The New York Times said that America of the melting pot comes to an end. David Reed, who was the senator, one of the, the two authors of the bill, talked about how the racial composition of the United States was thus made permanent by the creation of this law. The Los Angeles Times headline said that it was a Nordic victory, referring to the Northern European population of the United States. So it's very explicitly framed in racialized terms in 1924. And that was the law that the Border Patrol was created to enforce. It seems to me it has a great deal of resonance among some of the United States population these days as well. Some are quite explicit about the preference for Nordic people to immigrate versus others. There were problems with this, though. So they had the Labor Appropriations Act of 1924. And am I correct that that is what created the U.S. Land Border Patrol? Yeah, that's right. The National Origins Act went into effect in May of 1924. And two days later, this Labor Appropriations Act was passed. So it was the funding for the Department of Labor, and it included funding to create a land border patrol. So at first, they were supposed to be only at the land borders of the United States, but within a year or two, ocean boundaries as well were added. And one of the things I talk quite a bit about in the book is that the original idea, if you look at the debates in the 1920s about creating this land border patrol and eventually just the border patrol, 
They didn't imagine that the Border Patrol was going to be operating inside the United States. David Reed, that same senator who wrote the National Origins Act, also was involved in drafting this Border Patrol regulation. And and he was quite explicit that the Border Patrol should be at the border itself. And so they were essentially imagining just a force to be posted along the boundaries of the United States and to look for people crossing. And if they see people crossing who are unauthorized, that they could arrest them there without a warrant because it would have been within their view. They see someone crossing the boundary line. They should be able to stop that. However, the Border Patrol interpreted this regulation to mean that they could operate a little bit inside the United States as well, right? They made the case, well, if we see someone cross the border and then they're running or driving a vehicle into the United States, we need to be able to go and follow them and eventually stop them at some point inside the country. And they continue to expand their notion of where that would be so that within the a few years of the creation of the Border Patrol, they were operating up to 20 miles inside the United States, which the legislators had no intention to have created. So in the book I talk about in 1930, there was an effort to kind of rein that in. There's this hearing in the House of Representatives where they talk about this and that they're all just shocked that the Border Patrol is operating inside the United States and they're trying to move them back to the borderline itself. But eventually this idea fails because it's just a few months after the stock market crash and the idea is that, well, immigration is going to decline after that anyway and we don't have any money to set up more crossing points to convince people to go to crossing points and so it all just kind of falls apart. And so in the book I show how several times there was this effort to rein in the Border Patrol and to get them only operating at the borderline, but each of those efforts fails so that by the late 1930s, early 1940s, they continue to operate deeper and deeper inside the United States, even though that was not the original intention. Of course, the Prohibition Amendment was passed and with it, the Volstead Act in 1919. How did that influence or impact the Border Patrol and their operations? One of the key issues with the Border Patrol is the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution. So the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution says that citizens and immigrants alike inside the territory of the United States should be free of unreasonable searches and seizures by law enforcement without a warrant. The way the original Fourth Amendment was written was really about houses. Right. And when it was written, there weren't automobiles. Right. There weren't airplanes. There weren't trains that allowed people to move very quickly away from the location that they were in. So in the 1920s, the issue of automobiles became the question of could police stop a vehicle and search it, detain it without a warrant? Because they needed to do that, they argued, because the vehicle could flee if they had to go to a judge and find a warrant before they did any sort of stop or search. And this came to a head in the 1920s with the prohibition of alcohol. After the prohibition of alcohol, there were prohibition agents created whose job was to look for smuggled alcohol. And in the 1920s, there were two agents who were patrolling in Michigan and stopped a man named John Carroll. And they searched his vehicle without a warrant and they found alcohol under the seat of his vehicle. And so the case went all the way to the Supreme Court to kind of adjudicate whether the ability of the police to search the vehicle outweighed these protections against unreasonable searches and seizures without a warrant. 
And what emerged from that is called the Carroll Doctrine, which applies to the regular police, federal police. And later on, we find that it does also apply to the Border Patrol, although that was in question for a little while. But the Carroll Doctrine says that police can stop a vehicle, but only under particular circumstances. The first is they need to know that they have probable cause, which means that they think based on the evidence they have, if they had time to go to a judge, the judge would grant them a warrant to search this vehicle. And then secondly, they need exigent circumstances. So they have to believe that if they did go to a judge, that the vehicle would flee in that period of time. So if they have those two different factors, then they can stop a vehicle and search it. But if they don't have one or the other, they cannot. Right. And so that's called the Carroll Doctrine. And so that's currently the law for police stops on vehicles throughout the United States. Now, you spend a lot of time in your book, Nobody is Protected, examining court cases, and you just talked about one. Tell us about Map v. Ohio. Yeah, so Map v. Ohio is a case from the 1960s. This was a question of when police do a search in violation of the Fourth Amendment, whether that evidence can then be used in court by the police. So whether it can be suppressed or it could be used. The Supreme Court in the 1960s, which is the Warren Court, one of the few, maybe the only liberal Supreme Court that the United States has ever had, eventually decides in Map versus Ohio that if evidence is collected improperly, then in court, the defendants can ask the judge to suppress that evidence, to not let the judge or the jury consider that evidence in the case itself. That's significant because it means then that police have to follow proper procedures if they want that evidence to be usable in court. That's called the suppression doctrine. The second thing that Map did is it also expanded the Fourth Amendment to local and state police. Prior to Map versus Ohio, it was thought that the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution only applied to federal police officers. But after Map versus Ohio, it applies to all police inside the United States. And what about Terry v. Ohio? So Terry v. Ohio is the last of these kind of setting up the parameters of the Fourth Amendment. And so this was a case where a police officer noticed three men who he thought were looking at a jewelry store. He perceived that these men were casing the jewelry store and were planning to rob it. He didn't have what we would think of as probable cause, right? He had no real evidence that these men were actually going to commit a robbery, but he had what might be thought of as a little bit more than a hunch, right? He didn't just have a guess. He saw some evidence that they seemed to be operating and behaving in an unusual manner. He did go and stop them and he found a gun on one of the men, John Terry. And so then they were charged with illegal possession of of the weapon. The question was whether he had the right to go and talk to those men. The Supreme Court decided in 1967 in Terry versus Ohio that, yes, he did have the right to go ask them a few questions and do a quick cursory check. And so it created what's called the standard of reasonable suspicion. So the idea is that he didn't quite have probable cause, so he couldn't do like a full search of a house or of a vehicle, but he did have enough evidence, enough what they call articulable facts of reasonable suspicion to do some questioning of this person and do kind of a a pat down, a frisk of the person in that situation. So we, we hear about the idea of stop and frisk that emerges from this Terry versus Ohio case. 
all three of these cases end up being important for the Border Patrol because up until the 1970s, which we're getting close to now in, in the timeline that we're discussing, it wasn't clear whether these sorts of rules applied to the Border Patrol because their authorization in the 1920s had said they could make stops without a warrant, right? Whereas regular police generally have to have a warrant. And so even though these new rules were being put in place, the Carroll Doctrine, Terry versus Ohio, and the map ruling, the Border Patrol continued to operate as if they didn't apply to them up until the 1970s. And so in the book, I detail these key cases in the 1970s where this is adjudicated. We've kind of hinted at the fact that the Border Patrol can operate inside the United States, but it wasn't clear how far that was until the 1940s. So although the original legislation had meant for them to be at the borderline itself, they had been operating inside the United States. So in 1946, Congress revised the Border Patrol's authorization and said they could operate within a, quote, a reasonable distance of the border. But it didn't define what a reasonable distance was. So when Congress doesn't define something, it's up to the individual agencies to create their own definitions to these terms that are in the legislation. And so in 1947, at the time the Border Patrol was in the Department of Justice, it moves between several different agencies over the different years, uh, Department of Labor, Department of Justice, now Department of Homeland Security. But in 1947, it was in the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice released a routine interpretation of their laws in the Federal Register in July of 1947. Without any public debate or discussion, um, they set the reasonable distance for the Border Patrol as within 100 miles of borders and coastlines, which is a vast area um, and far beyond what was the practice of the Border Patrol in the 1920s and well beyond, of course, the original idea that they should only be at the borderline itself. 100 miles of borders and coastlines, that includes almost two-thirds of the U.S. population's homes. It includes entire states. So where, where I live here in Hawaii, the entire state is in the border zone. Other states like Florida, Maine, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Rhode Island, all of those are completely in the border zone. So the Border Patrol can operate with these special rules in this vast area. That brings us to the 1970s, right? And, and in the book, I focus on three Supreme Court cases in 1973, 1975, and 1976, which is Alameda Sanchez versus the United States, United States versus Brignone Ponce, and then United States versus Martinez Fuerte. These cases are significant because they're the first time that the Supreme Court actually considers this disjuncture between the Fourth Amendment, which says that police need probable cause to search a vehicle and they need reasonable suspicion to stop an individual and ask him questions when walking, but in all other situations need a warrant to search a vehicle. And then the Border Patrol's practices up until 1973, they were stopping and searching any vehicle without any reason whatsoever in that entire 100-mile border zone. Their view was that they could stop anybody without any cause, any reason at all. They had blanket authority to search vehicles in the border zone without a warrant. So this first case, Alameda Sanchez versus United States, was a situation where a man was driving 20 miles north of the border in California and was stopped by the Border Patrol without any probable cause. But of course, they said they didn't need that. He was a legal permanent resident of the United States. But when they searched his vehicle, they found marijuana in the back seat. He was charged with transporting drugs. 
his lawyer, though, felt like this was a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. And so although he lost at the federal level and at the Court of Appeals in San Francisco, he appealed it again to the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court finally heard this case in 1973. And the title of the book, Nobody is Protected, comes from this case. Thurgood Marshall, who was on the Supreme Court at the time, he was asking questions of the government lawyer for the Border Patrol. And he was trying to get at if the the Border Patrol really claimed they could search any vehicle in that 100-mile zone. And so first he asked, could you search my vehicle if I was driving in this border zone? And the lawyer says, yeah, we we could search your vehicle even though you're a Supreme Court justice. So then Thurgood Marshall asks, well, could you stop and search the president of the United States in the border zone? And after a little bit of clarification, the lawyer says, yes, we could stop and search the president of the United States in the border zone. Thurgood Marshall responds to that by saying nobody is protected. And that was the current situation in 1973. Almeida Sanchez's attorney, who was supposed to deliver the oral argument in front of SCOTUS, was James Chenu. He had a heart attack when he started talking, and so he couldn't continue. They postponed it, and these new attorneys from San Diego took over, and they proved to be quite a phenomenon. In fact, they were referred to by some members of the court as terrorists in suits. Tell us a little bit about John Cleary and Chuck Sevilla. They are the heroes of the middle section of this story, although in the end, they kind of fail, which is unfortunate, but they end up winning three of the four big cases that they they try before the Supreme Court. The two of them, they're both in their late 20s and early 30s when these cases are happening. So they're young, idealistic lawyers, and they were outraged by what the Border Patrol was doing in the border zone. And they felt confidently that they were right, that the Constitution did not allow for the actions of the Border Patrol. This first case, though, they took it on with less than two weeks to prepare for oral arguments before the Supreme Court. And of course, it was a case that the more liberal Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco had already ruled on and ruled against the client. And they were taking it to the Supreme Court, which by the 1970s was much more conservative after Richard Nixon had appointed four new justices to transform that liberal Warren court from the 1960s. So it really was a long shot to make this case and to make these arguments. But the two of them had this belief in it, right? And they they go there. They're, they're both federal public defenders working out of San Diego with very little resources. But nevertheless, they make quite a splash at the Supreme Court. John Cleary argues the 1973 case, and he shows up with just righteous indignation at the arguments that the Border Patrol's lawyers were making, that they could stop every single vehicle in the border zone. I mean, to him, that was the clearest violation of the Fourth Amendment that he could possibly imagine. But even then, when the case goes to the court after the oral arguments, they knew they didn't have that great of a shot, given the conservative nature and the kind of law and order credentials of many of the justices. And indeed, one of the things that's exciting about writing this book now is that the papers of the justices are now available because they've all passed away at this point and they're in either the Library of Congress or in repositories in law libraries. And so you can see the behind the scenes deliberations that the justices are having. And in that first case, they take a straw poll at their Friday conferences 
And the straw poll on Alameda Sanchez was five to four in favor of the Border Patrol. So they were poised to say that the Border Patrol could search every single vehicle without any cause anywhere in the border zone. And that continued, as I show in the book, up until about two weeks before the actual ruling was released in June of 1973. But at the last minute, one of the law clerks for Justice Lewis Powell. So Lewis Powell was a Nixon appointee, a conservative Southern lawyer. But one of his law clerks felt very strongly that this was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So even though Powell had voted in favor of the Border Patrol, the law clerk scheduled a meeting with him and argued with Powell that that Powell should read this memo that the clerk had written one more time and just reconsider it one more time about whether this was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And Powell Although conservative was a fair-minded justice who tended to want to find the most reasonable and kind of middle decision on any case. And so he did go back and reread the law clerk's argument, and he reread the dissenting opinion and then the majority opinion, and surprisingly changed his mind two weeks before the case was to be adjudicated. And so that switched the ruling to the defendant. And so eventually the Supreme Court ruled in 1973 that the Border Patrol had to abide by the Carroll Doctrine, just like all other police. So they needed to have probable cause to stop and search a vehicle. And so it was a completely surprising victory for these young upstart lawyers from the Federal Defenders of San Diego. Okay, Brignoni Ponce. So yeah, after they won this case in 1973, they were brimming with confidence. And so they returned back to their practice in San Diego and decided they need to file suppression memos for all of the Border Patrol stops, right? Because if the Supreme Court had ruled that they needed warrants to search a vehicle, then maybe they also needed to have more evidence to even stop vehicles in the border zone. And so a new flood of cases arrived before the Supreme Court in 1975, fall of 1974 into the 1975 term, questioning the ability of the Border Patrol even to stop vehicles in this border zone. And so in the case of Felix Brignone Ponce, he was driving a vehicle on I-5 between San Diego and Los Angeles. He was 60 miles north of the border in March of 1973 when this actually happened. And a couple of Border Patrol agents had parked their vehicle perpendicular to the interstate at night on a rainy night and were just peering into the cars as they passed through their headlights to decide whether to stop them or not. And so when Brignone Ponce's vehicle passed by, um, they saw three people inside And the two Border Patrol agents decided that they looked Mexican. That's the only reason that they gave for stopping the vehicle. So they pulled in behind, turned on their lights, pulled over the vehicle, and they found that Felix was a U.S. citizen. He was from Puerto Rico, born and raised as an American citizen. But the other two people in the vehicle were not. One person was from Guatemala and the other from Mexico. And they didn't have documents to be in the United States. So he was charged with transporting, at the time the phrase was illegal aliens, and the court case went to court. So by the time, though, that it went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court had ruled in that first case. And so the Ninth Circuit overturned this ruling. But then the government appealed it to the Supreme Court to try to get some clarity on exactly when the Border Patrol could make a stop. The question in this case was, can the Border Patrol stop someone just because they look Mexican 60 miles north of the border? So this is another case where the oral arguments are 
really outstanding by John Cleary. He has all kinds of quotations in this, just showing the outrage at this racial profiling the Border Patrol was doing. But in the end, though, he also, during these oral arguments, suggests a way for the Supreme Court to rule in his client's favor and throw out this particular stop, but create some guidelines for the Border Patrol that would allow them to actually make some stops. And that's in the end what happens. It's a 9-0 ruling in favor of Felix Brignone Ponce throwing out his conviction. But the ruling written by Lewis Powell goes further because the Supreme Court felt like they needed to explain to the Border Patrol when they could make a stop. And so what they put forward is that Terry versus Ohio idea of reasonable suspicion. And so the ruling says the Border Patrol needs to have at least two facts of reasonable suspicion. So in this one stop, there was only one fact. They looked Mexican. That's not enough. But if they have at least two facts, they can make a stop in the border zone. And the ruling goes on to list what those facts are. And it ends up being an outrageous ruling because of the facts that they include. The facts are really broad. And they also include facts that are not specific about an individual, but rather are about the area in general. So it includes things like being close to a border, the types of traffic on a particular road, previous experience with alien traffic, but also it includes race as one of the characteristics that the agents can use. So Brignone Ponce ends up legalizing racial profiling for the border patrol. Just the race of the driver is not enough, but they need race plus one, and then they can make a stop in the border zone. So these two great lawyers, they won their case for their client, but they also created the standard for the border patrol, which allows them to, in practice, stop virtually anyone in the border zone. And then U.S. v. Martinez Fuerte. Martinez Fuerte, same two lawyers, also written by Lewis Powell in 1976. This case was about whether the Border Patrol could just stop vehicles at these interior checkpoints that they operate. So in addition to doing roving patrols where they just drive around looking for vehicles in the 100-mile zone, they also set up checkpoints on highways in the border zone, often 25 to 100 miles from the border itself. And so this case was about whether they can even do that. Can they stop every single vehicle on an American highway and ask people about their immigration status? The lawyers from San Diego thought that they had a slam dunk case at this point, right? Because the Supreme Court had said they can't stop a single vehicle without any reason in the border zone. So to them, it seemed outrageous to say that they could stop every single vehicle on a highway at the same sort of locations. But that ends up being what the Supreme Court decides. So the seven to two ruling says that the Border Patrol can set up these checkpoints and they can ask questions of every single vehicle that goes through them. And then moreover, they include race again in this one to say that the Border Patrol can use the race of the driver as the only factor in deciding whether to send a vehicle to a secondary inspection that receives a more thorough interrogation. So what we end up having is a situation where in 1975 and 1976, the Supreme Court legalizes racial profiling for the Border Patrol. They can use race plus one factor to stop a vehicle anywhere in the border zone, and they can use race alone at the checkpoints to refer a vehicle to secondary inspection. The data since then shows that they explicitly do this in the border zone, that people of color are targeted for much more significant interrogations throughout the border zone. 
I bet our listeners won't be surprised to hear that about the racial profiling, but you also talk about how disgusted local ranchers are near the border and a University of Arizona Lunar and Planetary Lab professor, Terry Bressy, who goes 50 times a year since the 1990s to the Kitt Peak National Observatory. What has his experience been? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Terry Bressy, he is an astronomer who's based in Tucson at the University of Arizona. But the observatory he goes to is closer to the border. So he has to drive down there to do work. But then every time he comes back, he has to pass through one of these interior border patrol checkpoints. And he is outraged by it. He thinks it's ridiculous that having not gone within 20 miles of the border itself, that he has to answer questions about his citizenship status. He sees it as a violation of the Fourth Amendment and is outraged by it. So even though the Supreme Court has authorized it, he does not abide by it. So his idea is that the Supreme Court ruling says the Border Patrol can ask questions at these checkpoints. But the First Amendment still says you don't have to answer any questions that the police ask you. And so he does that every single one of those 50 times that he drives through these things every year. He records videos, too, of each of these encounters and posts them online so the listeners can go and watch those. Sometimes they just wave him through. But there have been several occasions where he's been detained violently, thrown to the ground and has a couple of different cases against the police and the Border Patrol during these arrests where he's won a two, over $200,000 judgment in one case and another one is still ongoing. The point, though, really of this story is that these checkpoints, although they're meant to be for immigration, they affect American citizens. The Border Patrol released a recent report that showed that 50 million vehicles per year pass through these interior Border Patrol checkpoints, right? We're not talking about at the crossing point, right, at the port of entry. We're talking about inside the United States, 50 million vehicles per year pass through these. And the data shows that these checkpoints on the in the interior are not successful at finding undocumented people, but they do result in a lot of drug citations. And 91% of the people cited for drugs at these interior checkpoints are American citizens. And so it's become this interior policing for drug violations by American citizens by a force that's supposed to be looking for immigration violations at the borderline itself, right? So it's indicative of this kind of continued expansion of the Border Patrol into the United States to do things that they were not originally intended to do. And post 9-11, the Border Patrol is now under the Department of Homeland Security, and all these funds have gone to them. They are now working with local sheriffs and police departments in these sorts of operations. So that's a whole nother level of complication that we don't have time to go into right now. But you bring up the point that the situation is now the everywhere border, as you put it. And let's introduce the air and marine operations, AMO. Yep. There are three parts of Customs and Border Protection now in the Department of Homeland Security. There's the Border Patrol, who wear green uniforms and patrol inside the United States. There is the Office of Field Operations, who wear blue uniforms when you cross at a port of entry. That's who checks your passport and checks your baggage. And then there's the air and marine operations who wear brown uniforms. They were created after September 11th, and they are able to operate anywhere inside the United States. So they use drones to do patrolling across the territory of the U.S. And as I describe in the book, increasingly, they lend out 
these facilities to local police to do other sorts of policing. So during the George Floyd protests in Minneapolis, there was a Customs and Border Protection drone flying above the city providing data to the local police. Nothing to do with immigration, but nevertheless being used to police American citizens protesting for racial justice. Similarly, these drones have been used to fly over the houses of environmental protesters, indigenous leaders in Minnesota, and monitor their houses, which, of course, has nothing to do with immigration and the border. So it's another example of this creep into just generalized policing inside the United States, which is not what the Border Patrol or Customs and Border Protection was meant to do. And you write, Reese Jones, that at George Floyd's funeral in Texas, the Custom and Border Patrol Predator drone plus 66 BORTAC agents, those are like the, the seals of the Border Patrol, plus six snipers who had been authorized to use deadly force during this funeral procession. Things like that are happening, folks, and we don't hear about them very much. What we may think about is what happened in Portland. We heard about people being picked up off the streets. Talk about that, please. Yeah, some of your listeners may recall these videos during those protests in the summer of 2020 in Portland, where minivans would just pull up beside people walking on the street at night. The door would open, camouflaged men in body armor would jump out and grab someone off the street and bundle them into the van and speed off with them without identifying themselves, without saying what they were enforcing. Those turned out to be Border Patrol agents doing that. They were BORTAC, the, the, the SEAL-like units you were talking about. And so it's, it's just another example of the Border Patrol being repurposed for these internal policing things that are not part of their original authorization. So in the book, I argue that this is so dangerous because there are so many Border Patrol agents now, right? When, when these key Supreme Court cases were adjudicated in the 1970s, there were less than 1,500 agents, right? And they were mostly operating right at the U.S.-Mexico border. Today, there are almost 20,000 agents, right? And they have this vast authority. A lot of these weapons and surveillance materials from wars abroad in the aftermath of September 11th that have this same broad authority to stop and search people in ways that regular police cannot. And so what worries me is projecting forward to the next 50 years. What is this agency going to look like 50 years from now? So we need to rein it in now while we can, while the Biden administration is in power, to limit where they can operate and to restrict these exceptions that they currently have to the Fourth Amendment. Do you see any indication that, that that's happening in this administration? Unfortunately, no. That's the short answer to that. I mean, there are some members of Congress who have proposed shrinking the border zone. So in the book, I provide a series of ways that the Border Patrol could be reined in. But if the, your listeners come away with one, it would be shrinking the size of that border zone. There is nothing in the legislation that says that the Border Patrol has to be able to operate within 100 miles of borders and coastlines. The Department of Homeland Security could start the process of changing that tomorrow to a zone closer to the border. The Border Patrol makes more than 50% of their apprehensions within one mile of the border. So why not set the border zone as, say, five miles of borders and coastlines rather than 100? A lot of the excesses that are happening at the hands of the Border Patrol are happening in that vast border zone. So 
the most immediate and direct way to counteract that would be to shrink the size of that zone. You interviewed a former senior agent who is now a critic of of the Border Patrol, Jen Budd. And she talks about the relationship to the more agents, 5,000, as you had said earlier, now 20,000. And the number of apprehensions going down, they had been 1.6 million in 2000 and 435,000 in 2020. So there's that relationship. However, in today's New York Times, there's a headline, arrests at southwestern border exceed 2 million in a year for the first time. And that's talking about fiscal year 2022 that ends on September 30th. I wonder if you have any comments on that. Yeah, there are definitely more people crossing the border today than there were for most of the decade of the 2010s. We saw a decline through most of that decade. But I would throw a little caution towards that 2 million figure because that's total apprehensions, which means there's a lot of double counting because of the Title 42, which sends people out of the country quite quickly because of the remain in Mexico policy. People are being removed from the United States quite quickly. So many of those two million people are counted multiple times, right? They've crossed three or four times and been apprehended each of those times. The second thing that's misleading about that data is that more than 50 percent of the people who were apprehended, and I put it put air quotes around apprehended at the border, were people who were coming from Central America, the majority of whom are applying for asylum. So when we think of the word apprehension, you think of someone trying to clandestinely cross the border and then flee from the Border Patrol, and the Border Patrol tracks them down and arrests them. But the reality is that the majority of the people now arriving at the southern border don't try to avoid the Border Patrol at all. Instead, they cross the border, and then they turn themselves in to the Border Patrol and apply for asylum. So I think it's misleading to call that an apprehension, right? This is someone who has used their legal right to apply for asylum inside the United States. And so I would ask your listeners to use caution when approaching that 2 million number. The article goes on to say that the number of undocumented immigrants from Mexico, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras is down 43% from August 2021. The number of Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans is up 175%. This is beyond the scope of your book, Reese Jones, but I do wonder if you have any comments on the recent political shenanigans of Greg Abbott and DeSantis in sending primarily Venezuelans seeking asylum to various northern cities. It's outrageous. It's it's racist. It's deplorable behavior. And they should be shamed for their actions. In the case of the people sent to um, Martha's Vineyard, these were people from Venezuela who were legally in the United States, right? They had come to the border. They had applied for asylum. Their asylum claims are being adjudicated. And while that happens, they're given a document to legally be inside the United States. And so representing that as some sort of threat to the country or as some sort of illegal behavior on the part of these people from Venezuela is outrageous, right? These are people who are following the laws of the United States and are here legally in the United States. So using other human beings as pawns for a political stunt like this is really unconscionable behavior to me. And I think it should be condemned in the strongest terms. 
people migrate, right? People move from different places. The United States has laws that allow people to apply for asylum. So they're following those laws. And that right to do that should be respected. And they shouldn't be treated in this completely dehumanized way because of that. So it, it's really outrageous. Reese Jones, there's so much more in your book, Nobody is Protected, how the Border Patrol became the most dangerous police force in the United States. Do you have any particular words for our listeners as we end that we weren't able to get to today? Yeah, I think the one takeaway point should be that the Border Patrol operates deep inside the United States and they use racial profiling and much of what they do affects American citizens, right? These practices are not just affecting immigrants, but rather, like I mentioned before, 91% of the people cited for a drug violation in the interior of the United States at these checkpoints are American citizens. So this is something that affects all of us. And it's something that should be reined in and restricted before it gets worse. Because if we have a future authoritarian president, this is exactly the force that they're going to use to carry out their actions. And so these things need to be changed before that happens. Well, thank you so much, Reese Jones, for your work and for joining us today on Forthright Radio. Thanks for having me, Joy. You have just heard an interview with Reese Jones discussing his latest book, Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. Poet Amanda Gorman opened the 2022 United Nations General Assembly this week with this poem. How can I ask you to do good when we've barely withstood our greatest threats yet? The depths of death, despair, and disparity, atrocities across cities, towns, and countries, lives lost climatic costs, exhausted, angered. We are endangered, not because of our numbers, but because of our numbness. We're strangers to one another's perils and pain, unaware that the welfare of the public and the planet share a name. Equality doesn't mean being the exact same, but enacting a vast aim, the good of the world to its highest capability. The wise believe that our people without power leaves our planet without possibility. Therefore, though poverty is a poor existence, complicity is a poorer excuse. We must go the distance, though this battle is hard and huge, though this fight we did not choose for, preserving the earth isn't a battle too big to win, but a blessing too large to lose. This is the most pressing truth that our people have only one planet 
to call home, and our planet has only one people to call its own. We can either divide and be conquered by the few, or we can decide to conquer the future and say that today a new dawn we wrote, say that as long as we have humanity, we will forever have hope together. We won't just be the generation that tries, but the generation that triumphs. Let us see a legacy where tomorrow is not driven by the human condition, but by our human conviction. And while hope alone can't save us now, With it, we can brave the now because our hardest change hinges on our darkest challenges. Thus, may our crisis be our cry, our crossroad, the oldest ode we owe each other. We chime it for the climate, for our communities. We shall respect and protect every part of this planet, hand it to every heart on this earth until no one's worth is rendered by the race, gender, class, or identity they were born. This morn, let it be sworn that we are one human kin, grounded not just by the griefs we bear, but by the good we begin. To anyone out there, I only ask that you care before it's too late, that you live aware and awake, that you lead with love in hours of hate. I challenge you to heed this call. I dare you to shape our fate. Above all, I dare you to do good so that the world might be great. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.